We are uh, starting a new series this morning, and I'm blessed by what it is that we're going to do. Now, here's the story. About a year ago, uh, First Hope, and then also Rebecca Hammond emailed me, texted me or something, and they said, Kelly, there's this book out by John Ortberg, Eternity is Now in Session, and you really need to pay attention to this. And so I promptly ignored it. Didn't do anything with that at all. And now, about two months later, or two months ago or so, I was in my office and I was thinking about uh, Alan Torrance, who's a theologian. He's, he's written some things along a certain vein. And then a, a New Testament guy named Michael Gorman. And they've written, he's written some things along the same lines. And I, I typed in kind of the theme that Michael Gorman and Alan Torrance had been focused on. And when I typed in that theme... John Orberg's book comes up, Eternity is Now in Session. So I yelled at Hope. I said, Hope, come here. you got to see this. She comes in, and she looks at my computer screen, and I said, isn't this cool? I said, I've been thinking about all this, and now Orberg's written a book, Eternity is Now in Session. You're going to like this. And she says to me, <laughs> she said, are you serious? And I'm like, well, of course I'm serious. You know, why, you know what, what's going on? And she said, Kelly, she said, Rebecca and I both told you about this book about a year ago. <laughs> and now you're, you're just getting, to, well, anyway, I'm a little slow on the uptake sometimes, okay? But I did eventually come around. And so I'm grateful that we have a chance to actually do something with John Ortberg's book, Eternity Now is Session. It is going to be, I think, a real treat for us. If you don't know Ortberg, Ortberg is a pastor. He's an author. He preaches at a church in Menlo uh, Park, California, which is in kind of north L.A. Uh, not, not very far, actually, where Kobe Bryant's plane went down uh, is Menlo Park. Uh, not too far from all of that. And so we've been, uh, I've been reading the book, read the book, liked the book. And I think it's going to be a blessing. Now, what I want you to notice, here's the, we can do this. There's the book. This is what this looks like. And if you're a life group leader, by the way, uh, there is a copy of this book waiting for you out on the table uh, out here by Hope's office. If you're a life group leader, okay, that's the book. And I want you to notice, I don't know if you can read the subtitle, A Radical Discovery. In fact, what I've done is put it on the screen here. This is the subtitle for this book, A Radical Rediscovery of What Jesus Really Taught About Salvation, Eternity, and Getting to the Good Place, which is interesting language. And a little caveat here. Whenever you see someone use words like radical rediscovery to describe something in Christianity, you should at least be a little bit suspicious. We are an ancient faith. And the core ideas that we have been teaching now for a couple of thousand years have been taught for a couple of thousand years. And so whenever something radical and new comes up, we should ask some questions. And so we could ask this question, can there really be a need for a radical rediscovery when we have been practicing basically the same faith for almost 2,000 years? And by the way, I was just thinking about this. Like, if, let's imagine that Jesus was crucified on about 30 AD, okay? AD 30 is about when they think that Jesus was crucified. Do you realize what we're coming up to in about 10 years or so? the 2,000th anniversary of the crucifixion of Jesus. That is going to be an Easter time. And the resurrection of Jesus also. 
Like, like that whole thing that Jesus does in coming to earth and then dying and rising. That's about to, to come on us here for the second millennium. And quite uh, interesting that, it's, uh, that we're going to face that in our lifetimes if we all stay alive till then. And the Lord doesn't tarry. Maybe that's when he'll return. That'd be kind of cool. So can there really be a need for a radical rediscovery when we've been practicing basically the same faith for almost 2,000 years? And obviously Ortberg thinks that there is. The question is, what has to be the case with the rediscovery of anything? And I want you to think about that for a second. What is it, and somebody can tell me the answer here, what has to be the case with a rediscovery of anything? What's that? Yeah, exactly. It's a rediscovery. And so if we're going to rediscover something, then what must have happened to it? It went missing. It got lost. But that's interesting. When I think of our faith and where we're at theologically in our world today, I don't think to myself, wow, we've got this huge void. Something has gone missing. We've We've lost this major premise. But Ortberg does, in fact, think that something has been lost. And so it's interesting that we can have something that maybe is quite good, but then lose it, maybe because something else has come on the scene, which is actually very good in itself, and then we decide that we need to go back and recover that which was lost, even though maybe what's replaced it in the meantime is actually good itself. And here's what I mean. First comes the book, okay? I want to read a section today from one of the great literary works of all time. Harry Potter, the Order of the Phoenix. Listen to this. Harry gasped. He could not help himself. The large dungeon he had entered was horribly familiar. He had not only seen it before, he had been here before. This was the place he had visited inside Dumbledore's pensive. I don't know how you say this. Pensive? The place where he had watched the Lestranges sentenced to life imprisonment in Azkaban. The walls were made of dark stone, dimly lit by torches. Empty benches rose on either side of him. But ahead, in the highest benches of all, were many shadowy figures. They had been talking in low voices. But as the heavy door swung closed behind Harry, an ominous silence fell. A cold male voice ran across the courtroom. You're late. Sorry, said Harry nervously. I, I, I didn't know the time had changed. This is not the Wizengamot's fault, said the voice. An owl was sent to you this morning. Take your seat. Harry dropped his gaze to the chair in the center of the room, the arms of which were covered in chains. He had seen those chains spring to life and bind whoever sat between them. His footsteps echoed loudly as he walked across the stone floor. When he sat gingerly on the edge of the chair, the chains clinked rather threateningly, but did not bind him. Feeling rather sick, he looked up at the people seated at the bench above. There were about 50 of them all. As far as he could see, wearing plum-colored robes with an elaborately worked silver W on the left-hand side of the chest and all staring down their noses at him, some with very austere expressions, others look of frank curiosity. In the very middle of the front row sat Cornelius Fudge, the minister of magic. Fudge was a portly man who was often sported a lime green bowler hat, though today he dispensed with it, and he dispensed too with the indulgent smile he had once worn when he spoke to Harry." 
A broad, square-jawed witch with very short, stray gray hair sat on Fudge's left. She wore a monocle and looked forbidding. On Fudge's right was another witch, but she was sitting so far back on the bench that their face was shallow. Now, you can start to imagine what that looks like as I read that description. And what's interesting about literature is that that's what it does. We've got a story here. It starts to tell this story, and it does so in a book. For a long time, thousands of years, people have been reading literature in books. It's only been in the last, what, 80 years? Maybe 90 years? That something came on the scene which actually looked like it was going to perhaps replace books. And what I mean by that is cinema, movies. And so if this all works, we've got a clip that we want to play, and it's exactly what I just read. It's the scene out of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Go ahead. Disciplinary hearing of the 12th of August into offences committed by Harry James Potter, resident at number four, Privet Drive, Little Whinging, Surrey. Interrogators Cornelius Oswald Fudge, Minister for... Witness for the defence, Albus Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore. You, you got our message that the time and place of the hearing had been changed, did you? I must have missed it, but by a happy mistake... I arrived at the ministry three hours early. Charges? The charges against the accused are as follows, that he did knowingly and in full awareness of the illegality of his actions produce a Patronus charm in the presence of a muggle. Okay, that's good. Do you deny Thank you very much. said Patronus? No. Are but... you aware that you were forbidden to use magic? <laughs> I know what you're all thinking. Let it play. Why why are you shutting it off? Well, it's interesting. When I read what I read from the chapter, I read for, I don't know, what did I read, two minutes? All of that was covered in about five seconds, maybe three seconds of Harry sitting in the chair. And then it immediately went on to Dumbledore and him being there as the witness and all of that, which I didn't even get to in the reading of the story. Well, why is that? Well, in fact, you tell me. Like, what is it when we go from books to movies that we may well lose? There are some things. And so I want you to just tell me, what are some things that we might actually miss in Going from books to movies. Because, oh, sorry. Because I would say this. There are some great things about movies. But the revolution that came with movies doesn't mean that there are not some things lost with movies that were actually superior about books. I would say that's the case. And so, can you think of things about reading stories and books that makes this a superior experience? What are some benefits of reading stories from books as opposed to actually seeing the movie? Give me some thoughts here. Okay, yeah, character development inside, what's going on with the characters, for sure. What else? Details. Like so far, you and you have mentioned two things that are specifically typed in my notes in terms of things that we would miss going from books to movies. What else? 
<laughs> you can replay the book a lot easier. And in fact, it's a lot easier for me to read the book on a Sunday morning than for me to play the video because the video seems like it's always going wrong something. But this worked perfectly. So I'm glad that worked this morning. But there's the potential for it to go awry. What else? You can read a book anywhere. Yeah, you have to be somewhere special, and it's probably going to cost you more money if you're going to a movie. I would agree, Terry. Thank you. Watch it on your phone. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, watch it on your phone. There you go. Technology is changing things. What else? Yes, you can recognize characters and see them. Yeah. There's a, a fuller description. How about this? What happens to the imagination when you read the story? It has to start working. Like the moment I see the movie, my imagination in some sense goes out the window. Because all of a sudden, I see the guys in their robes, I see what the room looks like, I see Harry sitting on the chair, and I'm not able to imagine that the way that I used to. And so imagination is somehow, I don't know, lessened? Kelly, the picture that she put that they had in the movie might have been totally different than what the author intended. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree. But that is, in fact, somebody's imagination that created that. And so all of a sudden, we're kind of pinned down in terms of what that looks like by the movie itself. When with the reading of the book, it's just not exactly the same thing. Well, here's what I, one thing that I would say. And I think this kind of sums it up. Reading is much more engaging of our minds. That's just a fact. And so I think if you ask a teacher, a teacher would probably say that they would rather have somebody read the book than just watch the movie. Watching the movie is way more of a passive experience. And so I think that maybe something gets lost. I would say, could it be that something was lost when people stopped reading as much and started watching movies and television? Most of us, I think, would say that indeed that's the case. Well, this is what Ortberg is doing with his book. Not Harry Potter, but he is raising an issue about Protestant theology. He's raising an issue about the things that we think and focus on when we're thinking about our Christian faith. About 500 years ago, Martin Luther went to a door in Wittenberg, Germany, and he put up 95 theses, and he started the Protestant Reformation. And if there was anything that Luther did in starting the Reformation, it was to do this. He brought about this point, that we are saved by grace through faith. That justification by faith is the very center of who we are. Now, this is, in fact, wonderful. There was something beautiful with the great advancement made in Christianity through Luther's assertion of justification by faith as the core gospel. And for Protestants, like this changed everything. We became a different people than the Roman Catholic Church because of this Protestant message. And in fact, our church has actually centered itself around this kind of message, a version of this, being very interested ourselves in what a person's response might be to this kind of message. So Jesus comes along, he saves us, we're saved by grace through faith, and then what churches of Christ more than anything else have asked is, what do we do in response? And so our emphasis was more on our active response in the conversion process, where for a lot of Protestants, you know this, it's, it's kind of just well, believe. And so many Protestants would turn to Romans chapter 10, where it talks about how if you believe and call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. 
We might say, well, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, etc., etc., and you'll be saved. But either way, whether we're just talking about kind of an easy believism, or we're talking about respond by doing something to the gospel, nonetheless, we end up in the same place. And so I would say that both Protestantism in general and our particular reading of the gospel story has landed us in pretty much the same place, a place where we emphasize being saved from our sins, making everlasting life with God in heaven a possibility. Now, this is a good thing. I would say that this is an advancement over how things were before the Protestant Reformation started. I think we, we've done something good here. But Ortberg is asking the question if maybe there's more left to do. In fact, we could frame it this way. Could it be that something was lost when Luther called us to believe and be saved from our sins so that we can have everlasting life and go to heaven? That's an interesting question. I think it's interesting that Ortberg would even ask it. There's probably some people who would hear the question and think, well, wait a minute. There can't be anything wrong with that, can there? Especially with some scriptures that would support the notion, and, and I agree with that. But what is emphasized here is personal salvation, where we receive salvation when we die. Meaning that sometimes, unfortunately, Christians end up just kind of waiting for death. It's like they have received, and we hear this expression sometimes, it's like they have received fire insurance. And it's almost as if we would say to the Lord, Lord, this world is a bad place, just get me out of here. Rather than having our eyes open to all the glorious things that God wants us to do here. And so Ortberg is pushing back a bit against this kind of emphasis. And perhaps there's room for us to emphasize more the impact that Christianity is to have for us right now. Now, I mentioned that there are some people I've been reading along these lines. N.T. Wright is one of the people who kind of keeps talking about this. Michael Gorman, who's a prominent New Testament scholar, has been talking a lot about this kind of thing. Alan Torrance, who's a systematic theologian, has been talking about these kind of things. And then Ortberg is a guy who, who preaches and teaches much more at the popular level, but has emphasized the same kind of thing. And so when I see all of these people kind of going in the same direction, I start to ask myself the question, is there something here we need to look at? And I think maybe there is. Now, by the way, I really encourage you to get Ortberg's book. Uh, You'll find it to be easy to read. You'll find it filled with illustrations. But I find it wonderfully exciting in addition to everything else. One of the things that has happened during the time that I've been in ministry is that I find people, younger people especially, not all that interested in going to heaven. Like if you're 20 years old or 22 years old, one of the things we've discovered is that these people are not so interested in going to heaven. Now, if you're 85, that's different. But when you're 22, it's it's not that interesting to talk about heaven. What's very interesting is to talk about what God wants to do in your life right now. And so the comments that Ortberg is making actually look pretty good to those who are 22 and who are thinking, what does the gospel mean for me? Well, 
here's the kind of thing that's interesting too. This is what Jesus says. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. I think it'd be pretty difficult to quarrel with the idea that Jesus wasn't interested in saving the lost. He is interested in saving the lost. The question is, what does it mean to save the lost? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Paul and Silas say to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, 31. The question is, what does it mean exactly for the household and for this Philippian jailer to be saved? One more here. By grace you have been saved. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. We know that verse very well. Verse 8 in the same chapter says almost the same thing. And then we know this one really well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. And that does sound a little bit like, Lord, save me, get me out of here. I want to start this everlasting life thing. The question is, What is everlasting life? What is it really? Ortberg is going to help us over the next few weeks to answer that question. Now, what he does, it's pretty biblical. Again, if you get the book and you read through his chapters, you're going to find him usually using one main scripture in each chapter and then going to a bunch of other scriptures to support the kind of things that he's doing. But it's just interesting to ask the question, have we at all missed at least some of the boat in terms of thinking about what our faith is to do for us and answering the question, what is everlasting life? What is salvation? What does it mean to have eternal life? And we're going to look at that over the next few weeks. I think this is going to be exciting. I think we're going to have a chance to see and to think about things that maybe we haven't thought about before. And that through the use of Ortberg's book, he's going to take us to maybe a different place. Maybe a deeper place in terms of our relationships with God. And I'm excited about it. Let's pray. Holy Father, we praise you and thank you for the privilege we have of uh, being here this morning. I'm grateful, God, for the, for the new series we're starting. For the ways in which it could open our eyes to some things uh, that need to be seen. And then in the process, because of what you've done in Jesus, in giving us salvation that we're going to end up in a place uh, much closer to you, God, than we are now. We look forward to this. We want your spirit to guide us and bless us uh, as we move through this. Shape our thinking. Help us to be open to new ideas and glorying in what it is that you want to teach us through your word. We pray through Jesus. Amen.